0: This episode of Invest Like the Best is sponsored by Canalyst. Canalyst is the leading destination for public company data and analysis. Founded by a former buy-side analyst who encountered friction sourcing, building, and updating models, Canalist is now used by over 400 institutions, including the largest money managers globally, and by a number of guests on the show. With detailed company-specific models and data on virtually every public company, Canalist clients are able to ramp up faster, update models instantly, and incorporate the highest quality fundamental data into any workflow. If you're a professional equity investor and haven't talked to Catalyst recently, you should give them a shout. Learn more and try Canalist for yourself at Catalyst.com slash Patrick. That's C-A-N-A-L-Y-S-T dot com slash Patrick. Stay tuned after the episode for my conversation with Canalyst customer Giuseppe Coco of LK Advisors. We talk about how Giuseppe has built Canalyst into his process as an international investor and much more. If your startup doesn't have the right compliance certifications, you can't close major customers. It's that simple. Vanta is trusted by over 1,500 SaaS companies to automate the time-consuming and expensive process of preparing for a SOC 2 or ISO 27001 audit. With Vanta's continuous monitoring solution, you avoid hosting auditors on site and taking hundreds of screenshots to prove you're compliant. Here's how it works. Integrate with your cloud provider and tools, check off items on your customized to-do list, and let Vanta continuously monitor your security so you can focus on growing your business. Listeners can redeem a $1,000 off coupon at vanta.com slash Patrick. That's vanta.com slash Patrick. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Patrick O'Shaughnessy, and this is Invest Like the Best. This show is an open-ended exploration of markets, ideas, stories, and strategies that will help you better invest both your time and your money. Invest Like the Best is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can access all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources to keep learning at joincolossus.com. Dimitri is the managing partner and CIO of Ballyasny Asset Management, otherwise known as BAM. BAM runs a multi-strategy, multi-PM model that aims to produce consistent, absolute returns. Since its founding in 2001, it has produced only one negative year and become one of the largest firms of its kind. Please enjoy my conversation with Dimitri Ballyasny. So Dimitri, this is my first opportunity to talk to somebody that runs an investment firm structured and built like yours. There's lots of names for these. I think the original name was sort of the platform model, multi-strat, pod shop. There's all these names that float around the professional investing community and yours is one of the largest. Maybe you can just begin by giving me a little bit of the origin story of the firm. And I always love telling these stories in sort of like chapter headers, like what you view in hindsight as the key phases of the evolution of the firm. Because I know you focus both not just on investing, but also on building the firm. So give us that origin story with a few of those key waypoints along the way.
1: First of all, uh, thanks for having me on. Real uh, pleasure. I've enjoyed the podcast over the years. It's an honor to be here. Origins go back to my origins as a trader and kind of thinking about how to build out business around trading. So when I started in the business, I started as a broker while going to school, but I really wanted to trade, but I was really got awful at trading and I was losing all the profits that I was generating as a broker commissions I was generating in my own personal trading to such an extent that I that I went broke when I was 23 and really figured out I needed somebody to show me what I was supposed to be doing. So I applied to lots of trading firms. I was hired into the Schoenfeld proprietary trading firm training program. And it was really a good opportunity to kind of learn some structure, which was inherently missing in in my trading. And so there was a good opportunity to learn from guys who had been successful for a long time, Uh, It was kind of an open environment where you could talk to people and just less of a formal program, but more where you can pick stuff up and people were open to talking about what they did. And so I learned a little bit about money management, timing, discipline, risk management, and those things are all just as important as the stock selection or investment selection piece. Even after doing that for a while, first year there, total income was zero. Thankfully, they bought us lunch, so we didn't starve. I started making money pretty consistently. Kind of go back to your original question it was foundational for me seeing the way the firm was structured where there were lots of different traders with lots of different methods and specialties and styles and the time when i started it was about a hundred something traders and by the time i spun out to start my own firm i think it was about seven years later there were over a thousand traders i grew up with the mentality of it makes sense to have lots of different types of risk takers because you have less correlation, you could attack different areas of the markets and have specialists in, in different areas. So it always made sense to me. The other thing I did at the time after having some success trading was I had the opportunity to help manage our internal fund of funds portfolio, which invested in different hedge funds just with our own personal capital. And so that was also really helpful, seeing how different firms were structured and who stood the test of time and who tended to uh, have lots of volatility in both their trading and their businesses doing that for a long time, it really further cemented my initial belief because the firms that we were invested with 10 years later, almost in all cases, were variations of a multi-manager model where you had different risk takers, different specialties, different styles within the same firm. Those firms tended to be much more durable over time and much more scalable. Whereas the Firms that were structured around an individual risk taker, even if it was fantastic, they had lots of volatility over time. And in some cases, that paid for itself. In some cases, it didn't. But when I was launching BAM and thinking about the type of business we wanted to build, we very much wanted to build a really uh, enduring, scalable, institutional business that would do well regardless if I was trading well or having a good year or not having a good year.
0: So there's something very firm over fun to use a phrase that pops up here and again, where for this to be successful, you obviously have to do a lot of things well. You need great risk management. You need amazing recruiting. You need to be really good at incentives and thinking about holistically a portfolio level versus just your own book. These are probably very hard things, each of them that you try to constantly get better at over time. How would you describe the state of this platform model today? What differentiates good from great in the world of platform hedge funds in 2022, in your view?
1: Just thinking about the industry, I kind of never understood why the hedge fund industry needed 10,000 hedge funds. Just from an individual wanting to hang up a shingle and try their luck, obviously the economics in a lot of cases makes sense to try that, but certainly they used to, it's much harder today. But from an institutional investor perspective, the last thing you want is 10,000 options. So I always thought the industry would consolidate over time. And that's really accelerated over the last decade post '08, And I would say even the last three, four years, it's accelerated again. I always thought it would look more like the private equity industry at maturity, where you have a handful of dominant firms that generate most of the institutional alpha at scale. And they have a lot of different offerings and a lot of different structure and a lot of investment talent. And then you have a larger number of specialized firms that tend to be smaller, but could be very good in different niche strategies. But you don't need 10,000 of them, but maybe you need a few hundred. And so in the private equity equivalent might be somebody doing know, middle market energy deals. The hedge fund equivalent of that could be somebody in a particular sector or a particular geography. I think that's where the world has been heading. In terms of how to get there, it's a very difficult model to execute well. and You can kind of see that by just how few firms have been successful. The folks that we competed with when we started are pretty much the same folks we compete with today. The number of institutional quality, enduring business models in this space, you can really count on one hand. And for the most part, they've been there for 20 years, or in some cases longer. So why is that? Because to your question, you do have to get a lot of things right. It starts with the mentality of the founders and the management being a good investor and being a good trader doesn't necessarily make you good at allocating risk or managing other people's risk or hiring other risk takers. and in many cases it's actually counterproductive. If somebody's fantastic risk taker, it's kind of like Michael Jordan wanted to pass the ball. like it took a long time before he was comfortable passing the ball. but then they became really good. it's kind of the same thing with hedge funds. It's a huge shift from somebody to go to a model that's centered around particular. Investment process in a particular person or one team to having, you know, in our case, like we have 125 teams. So it starts with that mentality and really wanting to do that and buy into that and be comfortable allocating risk to people, which I started doing within my trading group, you know, 25 years ago uh, at small scale. But beyond that, once you're comfortable with that, then you really need to figure out what is going to be your competitive advantage. How do you get top talent to come work with you? What are you going to offer them in terms of economics and infrastructure and capital and investment intelligence, et cetera? And then once you have that nexus, it's like, okay, how do you actually get everybody to work together? How do you develop people and how do you manage at scale? So these are all different challenges that you run into over time. that makes it a tough model to, do, to build out.
0: Maybe you can just describe in some detail exactly how a firm like this multi-strategy, multi-investor group works in practice. So if there's, let's just say, a pile of institutional or LP capital that's going into the firm to be managed by BAM, just describe the key ways that that capital is allocated, monitored, etc. internally. Because with 125 investing groups, that sounds like a ball of yarn, and risk overlays and all sorts of infrastructure and trading become really important. So just describe how it actually works. If a dollar's going in, how is that allocated dynamically to that 125 team roster?
1: We're structured by uh, business lines, by different strategy lines. Our largest allocation is equities, which you see 80, 90% of risk. Now is about 50% of risk. You'll have a management team for that strategy where they're responsible for helping to recruit, managing the teams, helping to allocate capital to that. And as an investment committee, we all collaborate on that, but you have a dedicated management team for that particular strategy. And then you have the same thing across other strategies. So our next largest would be global macros. So we have 40 global macro teams, so about a third of our risk. And you have a macro management team that's responsible for the same things of monitoring and managing and allocating capital to those teams. And so on and so forth across all the different strategies, you know, commodities, credit, quant, merger arm, et cetera. Within each of those, then you have specific capital allocation and risk limits to each of the teams. And so for each strategy, you'll have a general box that we work on as a partnership and as a head of that particular strategy team to figure out what does that box look like? And we always innovate and optimize every year a little bit. What do you want it to look like? In terms of what kind of risks do you think people have skill at taking, how much capital do you want to allocate to that, what other kinds of risks are you comfortable with and what amount, et cetera. So like in equities, we want it to be you know, very close to market neutral, very close to sector neutral. We want to minimize factor risks just to have a little bit so you don't spend all your time worrying about hedging it out, but you want to maximize idiosyncratic risks and minimize the factor risks. So what does that equal to in terms of position? might be a 50-position portfolio, or maybe for a large team, it might be a 100-position portfolio, 50 longs and 50 shorts. And then you have uh, the same things across all the different businesses, designing that optimal box that the people will operate within. And then you have to customize it a little bit. You might have some things work well in the US, but don't perfectly translate to Asia, for example, or the difference between a relative value rates trader and a more directional macro trader within the macro business. like Maybe you have to modify kind of the box a little bit. But it starts with that. And then you do the same thing across the risk team. So you have a large risk team, and then they have specialists dedicated to monitoring all the individual strategies and making sure that everybody's kind of within their risk constraints. And then the more valuable function, once you can do all that, is you want to help people get better over time. So we do a lot of analysis of people's attribution. What are you really good at? What are you less good at? What are other people good at that maybe you can add to your skill set? And how do you kind of evolve as risk taker and progress over time? And so we try to give people a lot of feedback on what's working, what's not for you, as well as for the overall firm. So you're not going to take a trader from one style completely polar opposite, but you want to work on your weaknesses and get a little bit better over time.
0: I want to come all the way back down to the core unit, the actual investment team and all the things that matter there. But first, I'd love to zoom all the way up to your level. So you mentioned the strategy heads, equities, commodities, global macro, et cetera, that would be responsible for their groups or their teams. But as you get all the way up to the top, to the CIO position, how would you describe what you're solving for? Like, Is there an optimization function that's going on? Are you trying to maximize a sharp ratio? Like, What is the solve at the end of the day as you put all these things together?
1: There's always a balance between sharp and capacity. You're trying to always find the right balance for that. And we do that all the way from the individual PM level to the overall firm. The individual PM level, like you could have somebody who's a four sharp, but they only generate $10 million of PNL a year. Like that's not particularly useful as the firm grows over time, although maybe it was useful 20 years ago. And so same thing at the firm level. So you want to generate high sharp returns at scale that generate the type of performance that investors are happy to participate in. So that's kind of what you're solving for. Like how do you get there? So you need to figure out, first of all, what strategies do you want to be in? And then how to build all those different businesses over time. You might have a whiteboard of like, okay, here's all the different things we want to have over the next 10 years. But how do you prioritize those? And then which ones do you want to build now? How do you want to build them? So a lot of what we spend time on is recruiting. So once you have a business plan for something, who's going to manage that? So you want to get the right leadership in. And then at the PM level, who's going to take the risk? And you want to really make sure you're getting really top talent. And so we spent a lot of time recruiting. And then at the development side today, for example, I did three calls with different risk takers of three different strategies, 20 minutes each. Just talking about what's going on in their portfolio, what opportunities they're seeing, anything we can be doing as a business to help them grow and develop. And that always generates a lot of dialogue. So it generates some ideas that maybe I could say, okay, this is a really particularly interesting idea that the firm could be bigger in that maybe I'll put out in my own book. There could be situations where one of the VMs was interested in a data point that was coming out from a totally different sector that they weren't as close to, but that was going to affect their companies. And so I put those two people together and talk about that. So that's a lot of what we were doing at the top is having an overall plan, executing to that plan getting the right people on board, and then making sure that the information flows really going around the firm.
0: With all the different exposures and managing net exposure and factor exposure, all these sorts of things, great risk management, I would assume that sort of the idealized end state is some sort of uncorrelated, fairly high absolute and high sharp return stream. And that you deliver that year in, year out every year. And that'd be an amazing product, especially if uncorrelated. How close to reality is that in these platform businesses? Is that something that's achievable and has been achieved pretty regularly? What causes it to deviate from that? What's been the kind of feel of the returns?
1: Nothing's a panacea. There's nothing that's perfect. It's a very good investment structure for consistently compounding capital at scale in an uncorrelated way. That's what we're really trying to solve for. So most individuals and certainly most institutions will have a couple different large pockets of capital that they need to allocate. And the vast majority of things that you can allocate to are correlated. They're correlated to the economy. They're correlated to the general risk and market environment. And so whether you're investing public or private, whether you're investing long only or long short equities or credit, vast majority of things, you had like every investment strategy in the board, like 90% of them would wind up correlated to kind of the overall economy. So when we're trying to put together a market-neutral product that's really uncorrelated, that's designed to fit a particular need, you have years that the equity markets are up whatever 25% and you might be up 15, doesn't necessarily mean you did a bad job. And by the same token, the following year, if the equity market's down 20, you still might be up 15 if you did a good job. That's really what you're solving for. How closely can you get to that? Certainly, very challenging to do. And there's periods where it's very difficult to draw downs just like anyone else. But in terms of the consistency of the strategy, when you're able to do it across lots of different asset classes and you get to a scale where you do have really diverse risk takers,
0: it's pretty consistent. What kind of leverage is common in this model to put on, on equity, on underlying cash, and that's put into the firm? How's that managed?
1: We look at things. On a volatility-adjusted basis, using our largest fund as an example, we try to run to like a, maybe a 7% annualized ball number, plus or minus one or two. If you can um, put up a two-sharp on that, right, that's a pretty good return. Now, the leverage it takes to get to that is a function of the market environment that you're in. If you're in a really volatile environment, then you don't need as much gross leverage because the moves you're getting are very large. Whereas if you're in an environment like you had you know, three or four years ago, where it was very low volatility. It's really difficult to have enough leverage to get to the target bond levels that you'd like to get to. But I would say in general, if you were to look at the equity business, it's a little bit higher than your typical single manager long short funds, but it's not tremendously higher. And when you account for the diversification of risk taker and diversification of underlying positions, we'll have thousands of positions in a very diverse portfolio and a very low amount of factor risk. The the actual realized volatility of those books, in many cases, is lower than an individual portfolio that might have a lot less leverage, but it will have much more concentration, much more tilts, and it will wind up realizing a lot more volatility. So when you look at these things on a ball-adjusted basis across strategies, you can compare how much risk do you want to take in equities versus macro or macro versus commodities or credit, et cetera, because you look at them all in the same type of way. And so we want to have very consistent allocations across individual risk-takers within a particular range. So if we have, say, a very senior risk-taker in equities who's had very long, consistent track record with us, and we have the same type of person in macro, for example, we want them running roughly similar allocations.
0: I think now's the time to zoom down into that world of the individual risk-taker. And one of the things I was most excited to ask you about is the management of incentives. It's maybe like an oligopoly. There's you, there's Citadel, there's Millennium, there's maybe a few others. But as you said, you can count them on one, maybe two hands. And not just there, you're also competing against people starting their own firms and working in other places. So just tell me everything you've learned about incentivizing talented risk takers in the investing world.
1: I think the most important thing is you really want to try to ascertain somebody's psychology coming in. It's difficult to do, and you can't always have huge conviction in it up front. Sometimes you can if you spend enough time with the person, if you have a reference from other people in turn. But certainly over time, as they're with you for years, you certainly get a pretty good sense of somebody's psychology. And you want people who are really looking to build a business within a business and are really looking to have a long-term career and have the right psychology aligned with that. So this is a very difficult job mentally. There's periods where whatever you're doing just completely doesn't work. Maybe something's broken in the process. Maybe not. Maybe it's just the market is very difficult for what you're doing during that period. There's a lot of management issues where it's not individual risk takers. Almost everyone we have is managing a team. So some of the larger portfolio management teams might be in double digits of number of people. That's a lot of people management that you have to deal with. Usually it has difficulties at the same time that you're having investment difficulties. You have to be very mentally strong, and very mentally committed that this is what I want to do long-term. This is the place I want to do it. I really want to build a consistent business. I'm willing to sacrifice shorter-term optimization for kind of long-term optimization, whether that's spending time hiring quality people, mentoring them, developing them, that's really important, whether it's managing drawdowns where you need to reduce risk at some point if things aren't working. And so you just need people that have that mentality and are really bought into that. Otherwise, you wind up with the stereotypical clashes of risk taker versus management, which we really try to avoid.
0: And so as you think about attracting people with that characteristic that you just laid out that would describe a good PM that's going to be at BAM for a long time, productively so, what typically wins them over? Is it structured financial incentives that are make them feel like an entrepreneur that are just clear and uncontroversial? Is it other things? What are the things that move the needle? How high is the variance of those things across the firm? Like How customized is each risk taker?
1: When we started, it was over 20 years ago, and we had a really good window into what lots of other funds were doing because we ran this fund of funds on the side. We had like 100 different hedge fund investments. The level of variance in how professionally businesses were run and how professionally people were treated was astounding. I mean, you had completely crazy stuff going on in some places. My thought was, if we could just start by not doing anything completely idiotic and just treating people like professionally and having some vested interest in their long-term career, that would go a long way because it was just really bad and very inconsistent. And so that was kind of the initial thought. You could just do it professionally, you would immediately be in the top 5% because just the industry was very immature. We didn't have any other advantages. We had no capital, right? We started with $40 million and our competitors were already in the billions. No capital, no reputation in the fundamental investing at the time. We had a trading reputation. We didn't have a lot of experience risk takers when we started. We certainly didn't have any great technology or infrastructure, and we had no idea what we were doing on marketing. (laughs) Great
0: sales story so
1: far. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so our first institutional coverage, I opened up the uh, yellow pages and looked up Goldman Sachs and Gold Company. So the only thing that we had going for us was we really were very intent on building a long-term business. So we wanted to structure everything in such a way that it would attract talent and retain talent because that's the name of the game. These are all... Alpha strategies, very difficult to totally computerize. How do you attract and retain that talent? So first, you need the right underlying structure. So you need an economic structure, diversification of risk, and investors that are buying into that, which takes a long time to demonstrate to people that works. That was kind of our model from the get-go. Secondly, once you have that, you need to differentiate to the talent coming in. So that'll, by itself, immediately differentiate you from 98% of the funds out there. But how do you differentiate from the other 2% that have a similar setup? And for us, that's always been the culture and environment that we want to provide to people. And I've always wanted to create a business where you have, on one hand, you have the culture and collaboration and environment of a small single manager firm where it's typically tightly knit. Everybody's rooting for each other. Right? You go out for a beer afterwards. Like it's kind of one team. But the downside with that is like you don't have any risk diversification, you don't have the infrastructure, you don't have the economics usually to attract and retain the best talent. So if you can combine that with the resources of a global platform with the technology and the infrastructure and the economics and capital,
0: it'll be really powerful. So that's kind of what we've always tried to do. As time has gone on, has that variance, especially at the platform firm level dampened, meaning the economic deal that a free agent PM might command at the various platforms looks somewhat similar to each other, and therefore, they're really choosing based on that cultural point? I think so. I think
1: people tend to sort of optimize for themselves on a few different metrics. Economics, obviously, is one. Economically, yeah, they're pretty similar. People have different twists on their offerings between your headline payouts, the total capitals, the expenses the resources that they're providing you, et cetera. So everybody's kind of got a different way of putting that together. But I would say for the leading platforms, like all well, offerings are, are compelling. That's kind of one. Two is, what does the person want to do? Do they want to go sit in the corner and just be left alone to do their thing? Do they want to do their thing, but they want to do it collaboratively with management and have lots of resources to build their thing to the next level? Or do they want to actually have a voice in the overall business and the overall strategy of what is the best way to build this strategy? How can I contribute? How can I make the overall firm better, the overall strategy better? And people kind of self-select on that. Some guys are like very comfortable going into something that's very well-established and they have a particular niche in that business and they just want resources to do their thing within that overall built-up business. Others are much more entrepreneurial. Maybe they don't want the risk and expense and distraction of kind of starting their own shop, which is sort of very difficult these days. And for a lot of strategies, it's really close to impossible, but they do want to make an impact overall. And so when they look back on their career 20 years later, like, what'd you do? Generated a consistent PL. Like, and right, that's great. But over time, like if you're spending vast majority of your waking hours doing something like, what'd you build? Like, what can you look back on and say, like, I was a part of that. And Part of it is being in a world-class firm and a part of a world-class you know, strategy where you could say like, hey, I'm on this team. and The team is awesome. I was part of this championship team. We've won every year. And two is I was part of building something where maybe it wouldn't have looked exactly this way if I hadn't contributed. People kind of self-select to different versions of that. And firms are in different parts of that. And businesses within firms are in different parts of that.
0: What other characteristics, other than the big overarching one you mentioned earlier about just overall alignment, what are the other characteristics you've seen over the years or decades that are common amongst the great PMs that you've worked with? Are there attributes that they tend to share in common or that you proactively look for?
1: Yeah. I mean, psychology, number one, it's just that the mindset of developmental mindset of like every year I start with zero, every year I want to be a little smarter than I was the year before always kind of working on their craft. That mindset leads to much more consistency over time. You could have like somebody's style go in and out of favor. And you could have a year where your particular thing is in favor. You got the couple big themes or trades right. And that's awesome. But to do it consistently year in and year out, you have to be able to adapt. And the only way you can adapt is if you have this really flexible mindset where you're always trying to learn the new thing, pay attention to what the new thing is that's going on, and just try to really build a consistent business. So I think that's most important. Part of that is the line between conviction and stubbornness and the line between aggressiveness and humility. You need a little bit of both. If you don't have enough conviction, you don't have enough confidence, you don't have enough aggressiveness, you can't ever take enough risk to put up meaningful dollars to kind of be at the top level. But if you don't have enough humility and flexibility and kind of adaptability, whatever your style is, isn't working, you lose a lot of money. So if you want to be consistent and have reasonable drawdowns relative to your PL and adapt to different markets and be consistent year to year, it's like really that psychological balance between the two. And then the other piece is building a team this is a real differentiator and doing that successfully to where one, the person wants to do it. They don't look at their teammates as an automated spreadsheet. They want to mentor somebody and have them become a great analyst and eventually a great PM. So having the desire to do that and then investing the time and energy to do that at scale across multiple people is really important. If you aren't invested in that and you don't take care of your team and you aren't invested in developing them and taking care of them both financially and from a knowledge perspective, they're just going to turn over. And if they just turn, turn over all the time, it's very hard to scale
0: a business. I'd love to talk about the source of edge, even just the nature of it and how it's evolved over time. One of my favorite, I think it was William Gibson lines, was first identification, then commodification. <laughs> you see that in markets all the time. You mentioned the hedge fund replica strategies. Someone finds something and then it goes away. Just describe in your investing career, especially the BAM era, how has edge changed most, do you think? And I'm curious across any asset classes that you want to dive into. How has it changed?
1: Looking at it from, I guess, an equity perspective first, my uh, original strategy from 20 years back, the markets used to be just much more inefficient to where you could have like an individual trader put up very strong returns just because there were so many trading inefficiencies going on over the course of a day or a week. So that still exists, but it's just much, much harder because a lot of those trading inefficiencies have gotten quantified. So now you have the SEDAR programs basically that are doing that all day long in various high frequency programs, et cetera, in various ways where they're capturing a lot of those inefficiencies where previously you could have a discretionary trader capture that. Fundamentally, same thing. You could analyze a company if you were speaking to you know, IR quarterly, like that was a differentiator. So that's not a differentiator anymore. That's like cost to do a business. Building models. I remember when we we're interviewing DMs and they said, well, build my own models. And so I said, wow, really? Is that worthwhile? Like, certainly wasn't commonplace because there was enough inefficiency that you didn't need to do it. And then all of a sudden, as more people started doing it, you did need to do it. And of course, now today, everybody builds their own models. You know, the use of data and technology. So we're offering Python classes, for example, internally. And we have lots of folks from all the various strategies, you know, signing up to uh, become much more proficient at Python because it's just a much easier way to screen a lot of data and have it accessible quickly. You know, it's relatively newer. The use of lots of different data sets, about 100 people in our uh, data team now. And so various teams work with them in different ways. Many teams have their own data people on their own team in addition to using the centralized team. And that's becoming a cost of business and more commoditized in some ways, but you're always looking for different pieces of it that are less commoditized. Trading infrastructure where... Five years ago, even, I would say, have really good software at the trader's fingertips that would break down real-time all of their exposures and factor risks and concentrations and tilts in a really useful way, uh, it was pretty rare. We've iterated ours a number of times, and now it's really good.
0: What do you think are some of the hardest decisions that you've had to make, either portfolio-wise, like I'm curious how 2008 went or March 2020, you know, some of the seminal, really difficult markets that you faced while BAM has been live. But I'm also curious the really hard moments or decisions at the business level too. So maybe just walk us through maybe one each, a portfolio side and a business side, what the hardest decisions or stretches have been in memory.
1: Portfolio side, I guess I would break them into into two parts. One part would be like where there's a real market dislocation going on, like a void or 2020. Another side is like when there's less of a market dislocation going on but you're really drawing down as, as a business we had a down year in 18 which is our only down year so that was more specific to us although it was a difficult market they all kind of bring different challenges in a really volatile macro driven period the first thing we want to do is we want to make sure that we're set up well enough defensively so that we can play offense because if you're kind of vulnerable and you're getting killed when everybody else is getting killed, it's very hard to go on offense and you wind up in a hope situation of at some point this will end, and it'll all be fine, which of course it does, but you might be gone. <laughs> so that's kind of the first thing that we do is we already run fairly tight, but we just want to make sure that any sort of tail risks that we have, any sort of negative convexity that might be not obvious in some strategies are hedged out any traders were concerned about where they were struggling when things were less volatile, and now they're really struggling. What can we do to help them stabilize their portfolio so that they can survive this period and come out on the other side and do well? And there were lots of those issues in, in 08 and 2020. I would say like 08, it was amplified by systematic concern where you're just worried about the financial world kind of uh, be there. So I remember being on calls with Prime brokers going, when are we going to get our money? Which was a real concern at the time because you just didn't know if they were going to be able to meet the margin calls. The CDS for prime brokers was going through the roof. We went to cash Q4 of OA, largely to cash, just because we were concerned about the systemic environment and the RV trading, which is most of what we do, whether it's in macro or in equities. Nobody really cared about the differentiation of, between the stock and net stock Q4 of 08. So, we made a good decision to go to cash, but then it was actually like worrisome. Like, were you actually going to be able to get the cash? We had some nervous days waiting for wires to (laughs) come, which thankfully they eventually came. So, that was amplified just as a going financial system concern. Like, the other issue was we wound up slightly profitable that year and the fund, but we were rewarded with 50% redemptions. We chose not to gate people. Lots of investors needed their money. And then we had like business issues worrying about, we had to pony up money and make sure that. You can help the business survive. We certainly don't want to be laying off productive risk takers or business people. Uh, the um went down. We had to kind of step up, and we've had to do that a number of times over the years and fund those deficits for periods of time. Twenty twenty, we were in a much better place, like as, as a business with much more solid capital and great investor base, and we were doing well trading wise. The improvements that we have made over the years, going through like difficult periods like eighteen was for us, where. We had too much concentration by strategy and by risk taker and by positions. And then we worked really hard to improve that. So by the time we got to 2020, we have much more diversification by strategies, by risk takers, by underlying portfolio positions. So there's just a lot more bets and a lot less factor bets and systematic bets that we didn't want was one. And then two is really helpful from the cultural and communication sense, like everything that we've always talked about being valuable for having a seat here it's not just about what's the economics on my PL. It's also like, what's the place where I can actually generate the most PNL. And part of that is the collaboration across teams and the intelligence that you get of what's going on in the macro environment. That really paid off in 2020 initially with intelligence with, with the healthcare teams and understanding what was going on with COVID. And then the understanding of what was going on in macro and with the Fed intervening by the communication across macro teams it was very stressful in terms of like every day you would have. Some portfolios that were down a lot, others that were up a lot. Markets had crazy swings, but it wasn't particularly stressful on the business level. Everything was kind of executing the way it was supposed to be.
0: If you set aside the kind of really early insights gleaned from watching all the traders and the fund-to-funds experience and thought maybe more towards the latter half or something of the BAM journey, what business decision now just on the firm side do you think was the most important that you made? And was it a hard decision to make?
1: The most important early decisions were one, you having the right founding management team. I've had the same two partners on the business side for 20 years. Investing in that upfront, I think a lot of hedge fund managers, when we talk to guys who are interested in starting their own fund and they kind of walk us through the economics, like a lot of times it's about, I can get somebody to manage the business side for, you know, for this amount of money, and it won't be that impactful. And so therefore, I'll be better off with the management fee. And it's totally like the backwards way of looking at it, in my opinion. So we didn't have any management fee. We started off just trading prop. And so everybody's compensation was just our expense. But even with that, we really invested in management from from the start. And that's been hugely impactful over the years. And I would say the mistakes have also been on that side where we didn't invest in management of... Particular strategies or particular functions like risk at a senior level, like early enough. And when we did that combined with the core management team and, and PMs we already had really took us to the next level. And then the second thing is the right foundation for a fund. Like if you have a standard fund structure and you have lots of risk takers, there's just not a sustainable model because at some point somebody's going to make a lot of money and somebody's going to lose a lot. If you can't pay the guy that just made, you're constantly going to have a revolving door of talent, of the profitable talent. And you have to be able to pay people market rates.
0: So how do you do that, that piece specifically? Like, what is the setup?
1: Yeah, if you have a top PM, in the old days, you could certainly start a fund. You know, today, maybe you could start a fund, but you could certainly go somewhere where you could get a payout that's very similar to starting a fund. If you're not doing that, there's no way you're going to retain top talent over time. Those two things, the right economic foundation, not compromising that, and then investing in management. And really valuing that part of the business is really important.
0: It must be really difficult to manage the short side of the book in recent years. It just seems like so many stories of insane volatility amongst heavily shorted stocks. And just, I've heard from other hedge fund investors more and more that shorts are just a sort of balancing basket to take net exposure out and less and less about generating alpha on the short side. Walk me through the progression of how you've, as a firm, thought about shorting, especially more recently.
2: Ours
1: hasn't changed that much. I think that the basic thought process that you hear about short selling is flawed. Trying to run an absolute return fund, lots of different types of trades to try to engineer a consistent high-sharp return stream. It's not as simple as, I'm just going to buy the best companies that I think are going to go up for the next 10 years, and I'm going to short companies that I think are going to eventually be zero. I think if that was all it was, it would be a much easier business. and. There would be a tremendous amount of overlap between people's positions because it's not that hard to try to identify the companies that you think, Hey, this was Apple was a great company. Yes, it is. Right. Like maybe you could figure that out a little bit before somebody else, but that's not to me the value of a hedge fund. That's not going to engineer a consistent return stream. Like markets are just too efficient. And so that misconception, like just looking for one type of trade creates huge volatility in people's portfolios. So yes, if you're a short book, is entirely composed of companies that you think are zeros, you're going to have a very volatile short book. And if you're good at picking them, maybe over time that'll make money, but you're going to have crazy volatility. What we're really trying to do is, is we're in the relative value business. We want to be in the business of consistent spreads. So whether you're operating a casino or you're operating a bank or you're operating a multi strand hedge fund, like you're in the spread business. And so we're looking for lots of different types of trades. And you're looking for outperformance between your longs and your shorts. And so you're going to bucket things in different ways. Yes, you might have a structural bucket in a particular sector where you might have some portion of your portfolio that's like, okay, these are my home run positions that I really think I figured out that Google is going to be great before other people have figured it out. It's not priced in and I'm just going to let it come out. Okay, you could have a few of those. And you could have a few on the other side where you're like, this is a fraud. I think these guys are going to be a zero. You can have a few of those, but then you have lots of other types of trades. On the short side, you could have expectation misses. Could be a great company, but they're investing a lot in their business for the next couple of quarter quarters, more than people think. And revenues are falling off a little bit. Expenses will be a little higher. And at this multiple, I think it's going to hit the stock. You could have competitive shorts. There's a competing product coming out. Um, this other drug company has a similar drug that's coming out. And people don't understand how similar it is, and it's going to be priced a lot. There's lots of different types of trades, and you need to have a diverse portfolio of lots of different types of positions. And so you try to minimize these exposures that either you don't have much skill at predicting or the skill is very low relative to your skill at other stuff. Your skill at predicting, for a typical fundamental PM, their skill at predicting like how a company is going to perform over the next quarter or two relative to similar companies is pretty high. If they have an investment process that's designed to do that, and they're following a pretty tight group of stocks and they're following them very closely, really understand their business models. They should be pretty good at consistently predicting that this company is going to outperform this company for the next quarter or two and constantly reevaluating that and rotating their portfolios. Their skill of predicting the company that's going to hugely outperform over the next five years, they might have some skill at that, but it's certainly going to be lower. It's going to have a lot of volatility.
0: In addition to the world of shorts, the Other variable that seems to be important for this business model and has changed a lot recently is interest rates. In what ways do interest rates affect this style of investing and how do you think about them?
1: In general, the higher rates are a positive for a couple of reasons. One, it tends to uh, correlate with higher levels of volatility. You want some volatility. So, like the worst environment for us, if there's like nothing going on, if there's nothing going on and there's very high correlation between stocks and between themes within different asset classes, like it's very hard to make much money. And you don't want to run a tremendous amount of leverage during that period to compensate because that could change. And then all of a sudden, you got too much leverage in a difficult period. So that's the worst. So anything that's away from that, which higher interest rates help with that, is helpful. More volatility is helpful. Secondly, for some of the strategies like macro trading, the largest part of macro trading is trading rates. And if rates are just all locked at zero and there's no difference between the paths of various central banks, very hard to make much money. And that's the environment that rate traders were in for a while. And now it's kind of the opposite of that. So you have a lot of rates volatility. You have various paths for various central banks. And you can do all kinds of different trades. You can do curve trades. You can do directional trades, et cetera. There's just a lot to do. And so that helps. From a leverage basis on equities, it doesn't really matter because you're always paying the spread and you're always levered. So your spread that you pay the prime broker between your long and your short doesn't change The level of interest rate overall goes up and down, but you're just paying the spread. So it doesn't really affect us from that side.
0: What's your view on the opportunity set in the world of private investing? Obviously, it's been another huge trend here. Venture, growth stage, more traditional private equity. What have you done in this area and what excites you, what doesn't?
1: So this is something that we started working on five years ago that I wish we would have started 15 years ago, but we really like the strategy for a couple of different reasons. Number one, it's, it's a good strategy in its own right even if you had nothing else, because just the trend is companies stay private longer. The trend of technology growth, creating most of the value in markets, I don't think is gonna change. It could certainly change this year, but I don't think it's gonna change for the next 20 years. So the ability to capture that by investing in the best companies during the best part of their growth curve, you have to invest in privacy market to uh, uh, to do that because now by the time they come public, like they're coming public you know, $100 billion valuations in some cases. Maybe it'll go to a billion, but you certainly missed a lot. That's by itself. But secondly, for us, it's super synergistic. The synergies between the public investing teams and the private, both for sourcing and diligence of the private companies, but also to help understand the companies they're investing in on the public side and the competition that's coming down the pike for those and who's taking share, who's winning share, losing share. Like that's super important tech. It's becoming more important in healthcare and in other in consumer and other areas as well. And there's a lot of synergies with our equity capital markets business, where we're very active participants in new issues and secondaries and financing. So there's a tremendous amount of investment synergy there. So it's a really attractive area. The problem with it is if hedge funds are competitive, like venture is excellent. Because hedge funds, at least you can compete for talent, and that's super competitive. But it doesn't matter how good you are, you can go and buy Google. Whereas in venture, you can't just go invest in Snowflake, and they're private because you showed up you need to overcome the negative selection on sourcing, which is really, really difficult. When we started like five years ago, what's going to be our edge and business plan to eventually be able to do that? Because you have to be invited into the best companies to invite it to invest. we started doing it in a few different ways. Like one, we personally started investing with lots of different early stage venture funds so that we would be a client, not a competitor. And we would have some deal flow from following their companies and seeing which ones are breaking out and already having a relationship, that fund and that manager and that company in a lot of cases. Secondly, we started a conference where we invite our hedge fund people and combine them with really top VCs, top founders, and put together various panels on data and healthcare research or cryptocurrency and fintech. And you'll have panels of public guides private guys, you know, investors, founders, management teams. And we started that five years ago. And it's become a really big draw at the top conference people want to go to. Those two things have created a bit of an ecosystem. The third thing that's really important is you need a dedicated team. Over the last couple of years, we've built out a really top private team that's solely dedicated to that strategy and then work hand in hand with the public teams. So when they're diligencing a company and they want to understand the potential exits and valuations, public competitors and strategies, we can get people who are expert in that particular niche of the market from the public side, as well as from the private side and put them together, if we like it, to talk to the company, where they really see the value that our guys can add. You kind of need all those things. I think people who are jumping into it without having an edge on the sourcing side and without having like really experienced, dedicated teams, it's very, very difficult to Compete unless you're just, you could be in a hot market where everything goes up. And like over time, that's very difficult to compete in. My thought is always like, if we could bring to bear the strength of a really institutional public investing firm with all the intelligence that that has, like we have close to 300 people in equity research. If you can combine that with really dedicated top notch private teams and a proprietary sourcing network over time, like it's not going to necessarily be in day one, but over time, you can really build a top notch business.
0: In what ways was your thinking or your mind most shaped by reading Ayn Rand?
1: It was certainly shaped, but my feeling like reading Atlas Shrugged when I was in college was getting a much more sophisticated articulation of things that were in the back of my mind, where you always kind of thought like, hey, looking at the world in this manner makes sense, but you couldn't really articulate it in a philosophical and moral way. And she obviously does a fantastic job of taking that and putting it into a uh, coherent, logical, philosophical framework. And then on top of that, the books are super fun to read. And so you can get through a 1,000-page book and not want to put it down. I became a fan of that, tried to help out with Ayn Rand Institute over time, who sponsored a large, I think it's the largest essay contest in the the country for high school uh, seniors with large prizes based on their essays. That's a strong involvement.
0: What idea do you think she most got right? And then I'd also be curious if there's you know, a major idea that maybe you think she got wrong.
1: I don't know anything major that she got wrong, it's, or at least I haven't figured it out. The major idea I think that she got right is basically that capitalism and individual achievement is not just economically the best system, but it's morally the best system. And they're morally and economically self-reinforced. That's kind of the thing that's missing in a lot of the dialogue that you hear in the Press and politics, it's always trade offs. If it's done correctly with a focus on long term success and achievement, there's usually not much of a trade off. The right course, it's not necessarily easy to figure out, but if you spend time on it, it's usually logical and you can usually figure it out.
0: You're from Ukraine originally. I'm curious what this episode of history has felt like for you as an American, obviously that lives here, but obviously vested interest and deep personal roots. In that part of the world, what's it been like for the last several months? Yeah, I was born in
1: Kiev, and best trade my parents ever made, which I uh, thank them for uh, immigrating when I was six or seven years old. You know, it's been horrible. It's just a very sad, very very sad situation. It's tragic that this kind of barbaric situation can occur in modern times in Europe in first world countries. You don't expect this in Europe. Very sad situation, but hopefully the comes to a conclusion before it's
0: too T1. Yeah, amen. What, if you think about the future of BAM, most still has you motivated? What are the Warren Buffett tap dancing to work phrase pops to mind? Like what are the things that when you're doing them, you're still filled with joy around the investing business that will drive you forward?
1: It's really the same things as when I started. I've always had two things that motivated me, like one, wanting to be an excellent trader. And so I'm still active in the markets, and I still get excited about interesting trades and volatile markets. I enjoy that. And two, just wanting to build a great business. And as silly as it sounds, it takes such a long time to build a proper foundation for, for these businesses, for this type of business. Maybe other people are smarter than me and we're able to do it faster. It really takes, in our example, it certainly took over a decade and probably close to two decades. Now, I really feel like we have a really good foundation for building New strategies and extensions of existing strategies with a high likelihood that we'll succeed at them over time. That's exciting because you're always kind of learning new stuff and figuring out you're good at this particular thing, how do you expand it to the next adjacency and succeed at that? How does it fit in with other things that you're doing? Where can you innovate? How can you approach this problem in a way that's different from what other people have done that might be better? And the last piece is people growth, generate a lot of satisfaction for me. So like when we take somebody who we went through our PM training program is now a top PM. And you remember interviewing them when they were an analyst coming, coming through, right? Or somebody who comes out of you know, our scholarship program with college and might start off in a very junior position. Hopefully five, 10 years down the road, they're a great analyst or great PM generating a lot of P and L for the firm. Like that's immensely satisfying.
0: Yeah, it's fun to think about the career development, maybe above all else, as a re- very rewarding avenue. As we wind down with your trader hat on, you mentioned always still interested in being good at that, getting better at it. Where does that instinct pull you today? With your investing trading function, not the business building function in mind, where are you drawn to investigate or learn or participate today?
1: My core is, is equity. Trade equities, trade a lot of tech and, and other sectors. I've traded more macro over the last few years as well. I'm more of a directional macro guy, and I I like periods when there's a lot of upheaval, when there's a lot of risk-off type situations. I'm drawn to that because, one, I like it and I'm good at it, but two, it's also a really good diversifier for the firm. We always want to be in a position of strength when you look at monthly numbers or quarterly numbers for people, and a lot of times they might look pretty consistent, but like, what was the market for month? Would the alternative have been if the market didn't come back? So like 2020, if the Fed didn't intervene in March what would your month-end number have been? That type of environment is where I tend to get pretty aggressive and try to really uh, make a difference. When things are uh, pretty calm and everybody's doing well, I'm still involved, but I could spend a lot more time on business stuff and trying to grow the business and recruiting and things like that because we have 125 other teams that are doing well.
0: Do you have a most memorable personal trade of all time?
1: I have a most memorable miss.
0: <laughs> that works too.
1: <laughs> when, uh, the mortgage subprime short in O A, we were researching it, and I was really attracted to the uh, symmetry of shorting subprime, and it made sense macro stuff that, that we were looking at. But we were hesitant to do it as a firm. You know, we were much smaller. It certainly, wasn't in our mandate that we would ever talk to investors about that we were going to trade subprime. We didn't have the kind of internal expertise on that. And in retrospect, I should have just put it on, and if it didn't work, it didn't work. Deal with that. Didn't have enough confidence from an institutional business mindset to do that. So we invested, you know, personally with uh, Paulson and that and did great. And we had a great external hedge fund investment, but could have been home run for the fund and for our clients. So the takeaway from that always is like, there's always a balance between making sure you have competency in something and enough expertise that you should be risking your money and your client's money and not doing willy-nilly. But you have to have enough also conviction and ability to take risk when When you do see the opportunity, even if it's different from something that you've done before, you might not do it at the same scale that you're doing businesses that you've been in for a long time, but you have to kind of get involved when you see something. And so we've tried to uh, do a better job over the years of straddling the right balance between them.
0: Across the major asset categories you described at the beginning, do you have a sense for in what order they'll be affected most by data, artificial intelligence, modeling, things of that nature? In the future?
1: Everything becomes more and more quantitative every year. It's hard to say precisely how it's going to look 20 years down the road. So what I try to do is just make sure that we're always on the leading edge of that as much as possible. My personal view is that as long as markets are made up of people where the majority of flows are discretionary, it's very hard to totally quantify that. The further out your timeframes go, the harder the quantification becomes. So obviously, the high-frequency trading firms, you can certainly quantify millisecond trading, and that works much better than, than people doing it, and it's a great business. But the further away you go from that, if you're trying to do private tech investing, and there is no data you have for, you know, a person in a business plan, that's kind of an opposite of that. Like You really need people to understand and research and have a view. And stock picking or macro trading is kind of in between those. You constantly have to invest in the data and automation and improving your infrastructure and giving your, your teams you know, better and better tools all the time to, to do that. So like last year, we, we hired over 100 people in tech. I think this year, we will probably hired 200 people in tech. There's an insatiable demand for constant tools, whether it's risk tools, training tools, research tools, et cetera. So we always want to be providing that. But for the further the strategies go from a timeframe perspective, the harder they are to kind of fully automate.
0: Demetri, it's been so much fun hearing about a very unique brand of investing firm. Like you said, there are many of them. Our first chance to explore one on the show here. So I'm, I'm so appreciative of the time and insight. I ask everybody the same traditional closing question. What is the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for you?
1: I'll take my parents out of it. They've done lots of kind things for me. A memorable one that, that really made an impression on me when I was a kid, I was doing door-to-door sales. I think I was 12 or 13. Fairly miserable job, door-to-door sales. But I was walking around with my bag of stuff that I was, that I was selling. I wasn't selling much to, that particular day. This guy um, calls me over. Amazing. Somebody called me over. Maybe he wants to buy something. So like, I run over, start showing him all my stuff. And he's like, no, no, kid, stop, stop. Like, I don't want to buy anything. I was like, oh. He's like, but I really like to see a young person working hard. And They gave me 20 bucks. Simple as that. And so that really made an impression on me. And that kind of reinforces that there's a value in the hard work just for the sake of hard work. If you can do that over time, eventually it'll work out.
0: Really cool. A unique answer. I haven't had one quite like that. Dimitri, uh, real blast. Thank you so much for your time.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me
0: Next, you'll hear my conversation with Canalist customer Giuseppe Coco of LK Advisors. We talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly around proprietary models and how Giuseppe has made Canalist a key component of his investment process. So Giuseppe, I think the place to start is with the concept of a deep economic model on a business. You've got a, a unique background in banking, where I think you spent God knows how many hours building complex models. And I'd love to just begin there. Just talk us through your early experience building models—sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly.
2: Yeah, so you know, we started out with investment banking, which is very much on the on the private side, and there, obviously, you have a lot more information, and so you can go in a lot more detail. So. You would look at the models that we were building for deals were frequently 20, 30, 40, 50 tabs, thousands of lines long, only like to get to a very simple output. And, you know, you would spend hours just changing this, changing this, updating this. It would literally take forever and it was very difficult, almost like to audit, you would find something, okay, you know, this number should be this, this number should be that, right? And you would literally go back and spend hours and hours and nights just trying to reconcile that just because most of the times people are just adding more and more complexity to those models and always ask for incremental complexity.
0: What do you think is the most useful and the least useful part of how those complex models are built on the banking side. Obviously, precision is good if you can get to it, but false precision is bad. What do you think the good and the bad is of that style of model building that's so complicated?
2: I think to a lot of people, it provides false comfort because it's more like the more the merrier, but it's actually not the case. It's more sort of, you know, what are the relevant things? What are the key things that actually make a difference? And frequently that unfortunately just gets lost in the detail. On the good side, to be frank, I don't think there is actually much because you think of a solution like Canalyst, which the first time I opened a canalist model, I was amazed by the level of detail and precision that they could get basically into their one-tab models. I was totally amazed by that, that it was even possible. You know, till that point, I mean, that that hasn't even crossed my mind that it was really possible to build such a detailed and sophisticated yet simple model in a manner that they do.
0: If you think about those early days and what Canalist does, or when you first encountered it, what did you like about the service when you first encountered it? Like what did it replace for you? And because you didn't no longer have to do those things, what did it open up or unlock for you with your time?
2: When I first started on the buy side, it started out by sort of models manually. My former boss asked me, you know, but like models manually into this and do that. And I mean, and then you know, obviously, like your work basically piles up. And I mean, it just takes hours, it can easily take a few hours until you know, few, you, you we know, don't want to potentially even like three weeks, depending on the degree of complexity to build a proper and running a fully integrated model for, for any of the companies. What Canalis does is basically condense all of that process. So it's as simple as downloading, you know, any PDF file just from the internet and you have the whole model there with all the relevant KPIs with all the relevant drivers, so you can overlay basically your inputs. I think from all the tools I have been using on the buy side and I'm using today, it is the one that reduces friction the most.
0: Giuseppe, I'm curious, where did you first hear of Canalist?
2: Funnily enough, I actually heard about Canalist on your podcast in an ad. and. and- you know, it was one of those evenings, I was at home listening to a podcast and like, you know, I heard automated models, auto-updating. I was like, oh my (laughs) God, this is is exactly what I need.
0: And I'm curious if you've interacted with others in the investing industry too, that are using it more and more. Like, are you seeing more colleagues or even competitors or friends using it too? Is that part of the growing network of it
2: here in the UK my previous firm I started using it and our team started using it and then you know a team that was sitting like next to it was like okay hey what are you guys doing you know how, how are you doing this so fast and then they started using it as well so it became sort of viral and then when I joined here so our CIO, funnily enough you know when we first met we talked about it it's like you know hey there's this is amazing solution which I'm using as part of my process he was like oh yeah he's ex fidelity one of the catalyst founders is also X fidelity so he had it very much on the radar and, you know, it wasn't even a discussion to get up and running when it when coming
0: here. Maybe just talk about your day-to-day life at LK Advisors. What exactly is it that you are doing? What is the daily workflow so that we understand how it slots in?
2: Depends on the time of the year. Currently, you know, we're going into earnings season. So what we're doing right now is lining up our numbers across the models for the companies that we're holding, seeing where our estimates are. And then obviously, that's just like preparation work at the moment. rest of the time is screening for new ideas speaking to management teams, attending conferences, setting up calls. And for all of this, cannabis is extremely helpful because, you know, you always have a single source of truth, which we can refer to look at the numbers and to get a better sense for where that is and how, you know, something that a management team may say is something that we like learn may impact our estimates and where and how they could potentially translate into value.
0: That single source of truth thing is interesting. How historically in firms like yours or in your experience, knowing other analysts and PMs, how is ownership of the model typically handled? Because it seems like one nice thing, like you said about Catalyst, is it's a single source of truth. Like It's almost its own ownership. You don't have to worry about it as much. But how, in the absence of something like Catalyst, are models typically shared and responsibility for them shared between teammates?
2: Maybe like even going back to the previous experience, I think generally in finance, and I think most people will agree that models are sort of, the, uh, the model on a company, monadia, whatever it, is, it may be, is sort of viewed as the holy grail. The you know, numbers that people use based estimates on of value. And it's sort of like the most thing. sort of, you know, what is the impact of fill in the blank, get X, Y, Z. So people hold it in very, very high regard. And people are very, I want to say, almost jealous of their model. And everybody thinks that if you own the model, you own the process and you, you ultimately like have the view. But the model also is, it's usually in, in, in pre canalist type of times, it is extremely time consuming and inefficient to maintain. You know, the way it's normally like shared among sort of like teammates is usually it's quite easy for mistakes to sort of sneak in. Canalyst is great because there are no mistakes in their models. If you want to have something added, right, you can just read out out to the support team and product analysts and they will amend it to your satisfaction. So thereby using Canalist, you don't need to worry about maintaining your single source of truth.
0: How would you compare how you use Canalyst from your sort of hedge fund days to what you're doing at LK Advisors? Is it different? Is it similar? Is it highlighted anything for you about the product or
2: products? It's a bit different. I think in my previous role, the coverage universe was a bit more fixed, a bit more Europe-focused. So it was more about updating, maintaining, forming a rolling view. I think in today's role, it's very different because our coverage and our universe is basically global. So when I came in, I had to think of, okay, so how can we actually like leverage this? And one of the thinking was, for instance, I was very keen to build a what I would call a quality scorecard which would allow me basically to, when you have to think about across developed markets, what is what most of what we do, potentially even like some emerging markets, how do you compare, cross-compare companies on a qualitative basis? So we started building out this process, which looks at more than 250 KPIs to help us build sort of a scorecard, which helps score any company along those KPIs from 1 to 10. And this is a process that we found very well working for us. And that without Canalist, I mean, it would have been virtually impossible.
0: Taking years or something. Yeah,
2: it would have taken multiple years, multiple years.
0: What do you think is interesting about where you sit? You know, you're in London, obviously a global coverage and universe is probably a little bit more important to you sitting there than if you sat in New York or something. How does that transfer into the use of Canalist and the global nature of what you do?
2: Canalist over time, you know, since I started First, using the product, they have expanded massively, you know, and wider into, especially like European companies uh, as well as EM and uh, developed Asia sort of companies. So the the universe has expanded tremendously. The other great thing is, you know, we we work closely with the product team to make suggestions on sort of you know companies that we care about and companies that we know sort of you know people here in Europe care about and. They are extremely reactive to initiating and launching on new models when we ask them to. That gets put on sort of like a wait list. So yeah, we continue doing that as we you know take an interest in different companies here in Europe. And I think the roadmap is sort of you know to get to like sort of ten thousand companies slash models, which is a pretty wide scope.
0: What do you still do that's I'll call it very manual that you don't think is too high value and you wish could be automated? Another way of asking it is like, what do you hope is on canvas product roadmap?
2: I think it would be nice to have something what I would call a buy-side consensus. If you ask many people in the industry today, buy-side consensus is this very elusive concept of whisper, what some people may even call it. Right? It's like in, in a sort of unformed expectation, and it may vary. What would be amazing would be to have some sort of analyst-user weighted anonymized average of what actually the users on the other side thinking, and then, you know, sort of providing an opt-in or an opt-out, whether you kind of think you want to participate in that, I think that would be amazing. The other thing is they're currently working on this Canvas platform, and we have like an internal developer who's working with their team to scale this scoring mechanism that I have just mentioned to you through a Python-enabled web platform to basically like run that even at larger scale through the entirety of their platform. And as that becomes basically like more alive and more consumer-friendly as the website, you know, I think that could open up very exciting opportunities and use cases down the line.
0: I'm curious, Giuseppe, if, if there's anything that you think is lost in the process of outsourcing some of this model updating. Another way of asking it would be, you know, if you're updating these things manually, does that give you some sort of felt sense for the business that you can't get just by looking at the numbers and do you think that's worth it at all? I mean, obviously you're a big catalyst user, so I, I can guess your answer, but I'm just curious whether there is a downside to, I'll call it outsourcing some of this manual work around updating the models.
2: I think the first part is that once, you know, when I, I remember when I opened my first 10 model, you see all these things and it's more like, okay, how does this work? Right. You would click an in introduction. It's like, hmm, you know, I like it. Do I trust it? And I think it's more when you have your sort of, you know, the companies that you know, and you follow them and you have a sense for the history obviously you know you need to look at the numbers and you just anecdotally get a feel for what it is but i think the beauty of canalysis is again to mention right so you open a canalysis model there are five tabs and they have these like beautiful summary sheets and i almost find it a lot easier to just look at those trends and get a sense for how something has performed what is driving X, what is driving Y. they actually enhance in my view that process of understanding what is going on. I had this debate with multiple friends and my view is that it's totally overrated to say, sort of, you know, you need to build the model to entirely understand the business. I think you just need to like look at the numbers, understand and how they flow, which is, you know, what Canalyst helps you with and do. I think the other thing that I found super helpful that initially wasn't as intuitive is their custom templates. So Canalyst has like standard templates or an LBO or a DCF comps, all these like, usual things. We have our sort of proprietary process of how we look at things, how we value things, the scorecard that I've mentioned to you. So we spent, we invested, you know, a decent amount of time into like building our own templates that correspond to our process that work exclusively on the kind of platform. Once we scale it, we put in that, you know, it incrementally helps us understand and make sense of a business. And why we can, you know, continue to comply with you know, how we do things and how we think about things.
0: Awesome. Well, Giuseppe, thanks so much for taking the time to do this today. Really interesting career arc that you've obviously done a lot of modeling. So a great set of experience to understand why this is valuable. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find every episode of this podcast complete with transcripts, show notes, and resources to keep learning. You can also sign up for our newsletter, Colossus Weekly, where we condense episodes to the big ideas, quotations, and more, as well as share the best content we find on the internet every week.